The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So you may notice from the uh, title of this sermon that it is, this is part two. And last week we uh, looked at 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul unpacked for us uh, spiritual gifts and how we are all part of the body. We all play a different role. And, and Paul actually is not—he's not, he's not fu- done with that conversation in, in 1 Corinthians 12. He, he moves on in 1, 1 Corinthians 13, and that's where we're going to put our focus on this morning. And it's really important. You know, as we are in the season of Epiphany, we are living uh, between, you know, Christmas and Lent, and we're focusing on Jesus as the light of the world. And, and we are the body of Christ. And the way that we put uh, on display for the world through our words, through our actions, uh, Jesus, the way we put that on matters. And Paul's addressing this in 1 Corinthians uh, to, to a, a church that's not unlike us and is struggling with these things. How can we be a spirit-driven church? How can we be a church that, that it pays attention to the ways that we're gifted but lives them out in healthy and productive and fruitful ways? Uh, because this is true that Though gifts by the Spirit are promised to us, the character that goes along with it is not. Spiritual gifts are promised to us, giftings, being good at things, but the character that goes along with those is not. It's something that we have to pay attention to and put into practice. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I ran into a blog post that was written by a Christian pastor uh, who he put his finger, I think, directly on this pressure point in our society. And he wrote this. He said, without naming names, you and I can effortlessly think of highly gifted cyclists, golfers, football players, preachers, and politicians who all lost their careers and the future God was giving them, not because of competency. They were arguably the best there was, but because of character. What felled them was not related to skill or ability, but to character. Cheating, embezzlement, corruption, sex, greed, or ego, or a combination of the above. That's what did them in. Which prompts this question. What are you working on? Chances are you're doing something to hone your skill. You're taking a course, you're reading a book, you're heading to a conference, you're reading blogs, you're hiring a coach, you're working on your game, which is great. But what if that's not the factor that determines your ultimate potential. All the competency in the world can't compensate for a lack of character. Eventually, ultimately, your character is what matters. And I think this is exactly what Paul is unpacking for us in 1 Corinthians 13. 
Paul is saying that we can be so gifted, we can be so talented, and have everything fall apart. And not only that, but have everything be meaningless if we don't have the right motivation. And so, brothers and sisters, whether you're in grade 6, grade 12, undergrad, postgrad, stay-at-home mom, retired senior, you know, we all hone our gifts. We all work on them. We all pay attention to them. But do we pay attention to our character? Are we bold enough to ask ourselves why we do what we do? And so let's spend some time talking about what this means this morning under three things. We'll, we'll look at the challenge of love or the struggle of love, uh, the character of love, and the power to love. The struggle to love, the character of love, and the power to love. And so as I said last week, so we'll first look at the struggle to love. Uh, the Corinthian church was very similar to us. And we can give ourselves a pat on the back right now, I think, because the Corinthian church was clearly a gifted congregation. And, you know, I've been around here for three years, and I want to tell you, First Hamilton, you are a gifted congregation. And that is a beautiful thing. And we have a diversity of gifts. And that is a wonderful opportunity for us in this city of Hamilton to be a unique presence of Jesus Christ in, in, in our neighborhoods. But the reason why Paul uh, addresses the, these, these people with these things is because they uh, were all, you know, they were all the movers and shakers, but they had the wrong motivation. You know, love in this passage is, uh, is an outward selfless action. A way of living out our gifts in a way that thinks not of ourselves, but thinks of others. It's sacrificial. And we live in a time and a place where, where that's not always uh, what surrounds us. Uh, we're told that the main goal in life is to, to find what we are passionate about, as I said last week. To, to find what we're gifted in and to make that thing the, the center of our lives. Live out your passion. And doesn't that sound like 1 Corinthians 12, right? We are all differently gifted. We are all unique and a part of God's wonderful body of Christ that he has pulled together. But that's not the whole story. Like the Corinthian church, we struggle to love. Our culture struggles to love. I was listening to a CBC radio interview the other day about climate change and environmental issues, and the host was interviewing a wonderful young girl from Halifax who was passionate about caring for the world. And I thought to myself, isn't this wonderful? Somebody young who, who, who shares this passion. And she, she not only was gifted, but she took to action. She lived out her gifting. She Last year, in 2021, she wrote a letter every single week to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, urging him to change policy to address climate change needs. But then the host asked her a question. Why? Why are you so passionate about this? Why are you writing a letter every single week? Her answer surprised me. She said that it all started when she was having a conversation with her friend, and they were lamenting the future of our, our climate. And her friend said, if, this, if our climate is changing, what does that mean for my hopes and dreams? 
You know, the, the passion that this young girl had for climate change was, was motivated by her own hopes and dreams for her life. Think about that. That was, it wasn't about the environment. It was about her. With so much to celebrate on how she used her gifts, her motivation was ultimately not selfless love. It was selfishness. It was directed towards her own good. You know, we do the same thing as Christians and in the church. We, we, you know, why do we come to church? Why do we worship? Why do we serve the poor? These are really big questions. And I think Tim Keller, uh, in, in his uh, sermon on this passage, points out that Paul includes a list not just of spiritual gifts in, in this passage, but he also includes Christian virtues. Things that, ways that we should be acting, good motives. And Paul says in verse 3, he says, If I give all I possess to the poor, or give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so right here in verse 3, we see Christian virtues that are both liberal and conservative. Right, when we would say, you know, it's the more progressives that are giving all of their possessions to the poor, right? Ridding themselves of all of the, the, the things in life and living a very ascetic, simple lifestyle so that we can be like Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. And conservative actions, right? Giving our body over to suffering, enduring hardship in the name of Jesus and persecution. And Paul names both of these things. Essentially, he lumps in all the Christians in the world into this, and he says, but you can still do that and not have love in your heart. Both liberal and conservative Christians can act without love. And how can we tell this? Well, we have to look at the description of love in verses 4 to 7 and ask ourselves these questions in the negative, right? Am I ever impatient? Do I ever find myself looking down at others who aren't as generous as I am? Have I ever been jealous of what others can do? Do I ever seek my own interests above the interests of others? I think all of us, if we're honest, we have to answer yes to these questions. I think we could go right down the list and answer yes to all of them if we're being really honest about how we act in the world. And this is a problem. We all struggle to love. We all struggle to, to live out of the character of love. And, and as one commentator I read put it, he, he put it so bluntly, he says, Paul goes as far as to say that if we are not motivated by love, the entire identity of a person is invalidated, deemed nothing. If love is the measuring stick, then we are in trouble. But what does love look like? And can we learn to put it on to become more like what love is? You know, it strikes me, so let's move on now to the character of love. What strikes me is that Paul does not describe love as an emotion. We often think of love as an emotion, something that we feel. But Paul describes love as a person. 
a person with a, a certain character. Right? Every single description here in this passage is a verb. Love is a verb, as the famous singer John Mayer once said. So in order to get a better understanding of the character of love, I think, I think it would be helpful for us to, to do something that I think all of us have done before. Let's just be honest here. Imagine that you're at the mall and you're people watching. Okay? You're at the mall, you're people watching, and love walks by. What would that person look like? Let's move through the list and explore this for a second. What would we notice? First, love is patient. What does it mean to be a patient person? Now, how many of us have been told while we're waiting for something, you know, stop complaining, just be patient, wait your turn. But I think patience is a little bit more than that. I was reading a blog post this week by a woman named Christina Fox, and she described patience as more than just having a good attitude while we wait for something. She said that patience is also forbearance, endurance. She writes this, Patience means responding to others with a calm, gentle, and quiet spirit, even when they've done us wrong. Patience is more than just waiting. It's about the attitude that we have, the way that we respond while we wait for things, even injustices in our lives, to be made right. Love is patient. Second, Paul says that love is kind. Kindness means doing good towards others with no expectation of anything in return. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? To have no expectation of any sort of action in return for the goodness that we give to others. Third, Paul says that love does not envy. In Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon on this passage, he describes envy as a spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others when compared with your own. And what that means essentially is that when we are, when we become dissatisfied with our own life because we see the lives of others, we fall into envy. Love is the opposite of that. Love leads us to a contentment in our circumstances and a happiness towards others in theirs. It disconnects us from the comparison mindset that we can often fall into. And so as we, you know, sit on the bench in the mall and we watch love go by, we can start to fill in some of these character traits that we would notice. And I think the character of love is selfless, unhurried, consistent in action, and ultimately committed to the goodness of others. And when I was reflecting on this, I couldn't help but think of how this is how we have come to know the TV show host Fred Rogers. Has anybody ever heard of Mr. Rogers before? Joshua and I were having a conversation about this last week after the, the sermon, but a few weeks ago, Tracy and I watched the film A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and I was so struck by one scene in particular 
where Fred Rogers shows the powerful character of love. The Esquire journalist Lloyd Vogel, who was invited to the the set of A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood to interview Fred, uh, arrived, and when he came to see Mr. Rogers on the set, he found him down on one knee talking to a little boy who was holding a toy sword. The little boy did not look extremely responsive to Mr. Rogers as he was talking to him. In fact, the little boy was hitting Mr. Rogers with the foam sword, which made it a little bit awkward to watch, especially as the boy's parents looked on and and apologized again and again for the boy's behavior. Fred would always respond with, it's okay, and continue looking at the boy in the face, telling him what a wonderful sword he had. After a few moments of watching, uh, Lloyd turns to the stage director and asks, does this happen a lot? Every day, the stage director responds. Mr. Rogers continues to look into the boy's eyes and to smile at him. And then the strangest thing happens. The boy stops, drops the sword, reaches out and gives Mr. Rogers a big hug. And I couldn't help but see this as just a beautiful picture of the character of love. The unhurried, the, the selflessness, the, the, the thinking of others before ourselves. The patience that blesses rather than tearing down. Now how do we get the power to live like this? Not on our own, that's for sure. We have to remember Above everything that I say, remember this, that Paul does not make love a to-do list. It's a person. It's a person to copy. But it's also a power that comes to life in us through Jesus. Now, it shouldn't surprise us to discover that the power of love, the character of love, that Paul describes here, flows out of the character of God himself. John Stott masterfully describes this for us in the life of Jesus. And we could trace this character of love throughout the whole narrative of Scripture. But in Jesus, John Stott says this, the life of Jesus was the perfect, most spectacular instance of cultural identification in the history of mankind. For the Son of Man, the Son of God, did not stay safe in the immunity of his heaven, remote from human sin and tragedy. He entered the world. He emptied himself of his glory. He humbled himself to serve. He took our nature. He lived out our life. He endured our temptations. He experienced our sorrows. He felt our hearts. He bore our sins and died our death. He penetrated deeply into our humanness. When he lived, he never stayed away from people he might have been expected to avoid. 
He made friends with the dropouts of society. He even touched untouchables. He could not have made himself more one with us than he did. It was the total identification of love. Jesus loves you. And Jesus gave himself for you. And what this means is that when he came to earth, he was doing the loving that we should have been doing in our whole lives. He fulfilled love. In all of its meaning, Jesus is love. But then he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he switched places with us. And he became nothing. And he took upon himself our brokenness. Paul says, if you don't have love, you are nothing. On the cross, Jesus became nothing. He was completely humiliated and stomped on by everyone, abandoned by his friends, and even the God of the universe, his own Father, looked away from him, and Jesus lost all of the sense of God's love for him. Jesus fulfilled love and took our place. And what that means for us is that he, through Jesus Christ, because he's given himself for us, he invites us to be a part of a different story. A story that says we don't have to prove ourselves, but that we can receive everything we need through his grace. This allows us to set aside all of the ways that we think we need to prove ourselves to be good, the good deeds, those liberal and conservative virtues that we tend to muster up so that we can say to God, I'm worthy of your love. No, Jesus has done that for us. And we can know that we're loved by God through him. So that means we can, we can be free. To become more like love, the character, and let Jesus come to life in us. And, and I think C.S. Lewis provides a powerful image of what this looks like in eternity. He describes the different scenes in heaven and hell like this. He says, imagine hungry people sitting at a huge banquet table loaded with delicious food. Every person had a three-foot-long fork and knife attached to their hands. The scene in hell was one of anger, frustration, fighting, as people scrambled to feed themselves. They could reach the food with a long, their long forks and knives, but they were too long to feed themselves. The conflict, the screaming, and unfulfilled hunger continued for an eternity. That's hell. But the scene in heaven was quite different. 
the same tables were loaded with food, and the people had the same long forks and knives attached to their hands. But instead of chaos and conflict, there was joy, laughter, and pleasant conversation. The difference? In heaven, the diners weren't trying to feed themselves. Each person was patiently taking the food and feeding the person across from them. This is the story that Jesus invites us into. I am somebody. I am loved. I am cared for. I am part of something bigger. And I don't have to do it on my own. All because of Jesus. And so I don't have to worry about feeding myself. Instead, I can feed others. Paul sums this up beautifully when he says that in the end, our gifts won't really matter. Prophecy will end. Knowledge will become obsolete. We will know everything. Everything will be complete. But character will continue. If we see Christ loving us, giving himself for us, providing for our every need, the character of love will begin to come to life in us, and that will continue into eternity. This is our witness in the world, and it's the story that God invites us into. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that you have given to us through the Apostle Paul that show us the struggle to love the person of love and the power to love. Help us by your spirit to become more like Jesus, the only person who has ever lived out the character of love perfectly. Help us to know that we are the object of your love, which means we can be selfless giving, patient, and kind. That we can think of others before ourselves. And God, as we, as a church downtown Hamilton, as we seek to do this in and through our community and our neighborhoods, help us. Remind us that we are a part of your story and that we each have a part to play. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.